grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Happy New Year, everyone. It's Joe here. We've flipped the page into 2021, and one can only hope it takes a more positive turn than 2020. But as the famous Austrian Holocaust survivor, psychiatrist and author Viktor Frankl wrote in Man's Search for Meaning, the last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And what I take from this is that no matter how this year twists and turns, we are not pieces of paper caught up in the wind with no control over where we land. We have the freedom to choose how we respond to events that are outside of our control. With this in mind, I am so excited to introduce today's guest who is going to help us explore this idea. Pam Cardano is a marriage and family therapist and psychotherapist in the USA. She is also a cancer survivor and adoptee who is passionate about healing and community. Most of her work over 30 years has been focused on clients who experience serious illness or tragedy, where life was one way and suddenly changed in a moment. Her early life experience mirrors the trauma of this population and her personal insights have deeply influenced her work. Pam says her greatest passion is helping people awaken their human capacity to move from despair to living a life of meaning and empowerment, which Pam calls finding a deeper yes to life. Inspired by Viktor Frankl, she helps clients identify and cultivate what is uniquely meaningful to them, which allows for increased vitality and new possibilities. Today, we'll be talking with her about her experience as an adopted person and her brilliant new book, 10 Foundations for a Meaningful Life, No Matter What's Happened. This book is for everyone who has experienced suffering in their life, which makes it highly relevant to not only adopted people, but to mothers, fathers who have lost children to adoption and all who have been touched by adoption in some way. Welcome, Pam, to Adopt Perspective. We are thrilled to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, Joe, and hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today. Pam, I know that some of our listeners will be familiar with you thanks to Hayley Radke's Adoptees On podcast, but as your book was only published this year, they may not have had a chance to read it yet. You've based your book on the work of Viktor Frankl, and I mentioned him earlier, but for anyone who isn't familiar with his work, can you give us a bit of a summary of him and what drew you to do this? Yeah, so he was, a, like you said, a Holocaust survivor, and he was a young man in the Holocaust in prison for four years. During the Holocaust, his pregnant wife, his parents, and his siblings, except for, I think, one sister, were murdered. That's right. And, yeah, and he was um, in prison for four years. And while he was in the concentration camps, he was studying the human capacity around suffering and what are we humans capable of when we lose seemingly everything? And he was trying to find, is there anything 
we can really hold on to or tap into when everything seems lost. So because I had a lot of suffering in my early life and growing up and felt very lonely and despairing, his story was sort of awful enough and tragic enough that when I read his book, Man's Search for Meaning, I felt like he could understand something about my suffering. And it was, it was as if he reached through the pages to say, I have something for you. And uh, he's been my muse. So when I wrote this book, I, I just had to dedicate it to Viktor Frankl because he's been with me in some way through my own healing and journey to help other people heal. Yeah, you actually sent me back to read his work again, and um, and it is really incredible. It's so powerful, and um, and I can really see where he's influenced your own book and and your own way of thinking and healing. Mm -hmm. Pam, I'm not a huge fan of New Year's resolutions, but something that I like to do every year is select a theme word, corny as it sounds. Um, it's a word that encompasses what I want to concentrate on. So I guess a, a keel, if you like, something that keeps my boat headed in the direction that I plan to go in. And somewhat ironically, I forgot to pick one for 2020, which is perhaps a good mm -hmm. thing. But uh, anyway, thanks to your book, I've narrowed down my word for this year, and it is meaning. I thought you might help kickstart me and our listeners into 2021 and our own search for a meaningful life. Are you up for that? I would love to, to help with that. It's very exciting. Awesome. <laughs> okay, well, let's get started. Um, you write in your book that meaning is the only antidote to despair. What do you mean by this? Mm -hmm. Well, despair is not a psychological disorder. Despair is really a spiritual disorder. Like we can't take antidepressants or some other medication to cure despair. So when a person is despairing, what they've really lost is access to a sense of meaning in their lives. And what is meaning? Meaning is really a spiritual connection to the world, the universe around us and feeling a part of it all. And so despair is actually very dangerous. You know, that's a place where people um, die by suicide and, um, might not die, but but li live kind of in a live sort of, li they live like a death in a, in a living body, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. yeah so um, despair is a place where people get addicted and people shut down and their, their lives can get very small. So <laughs> because it's not a psychological disorder, it's a spiritual disorder. That, and despair is really defined by a lack of meaning. That's what despair is. And so Meaning is the antidote to despair. Well, actually, I have a little story. Can I tell you a little story of how I, yes, I, I can understand this? Yeah. So a lot of my work has been with adults with advanced cancer. And I really, I, I hadn't connected this to my adoption until later in my career. But I think that since my early life and my adoption experience has been had been so difficult for me, that when I would meet adults who had a cancer diagnosis and who had a part of them that were living and then a part of them that was a part of them that was living and a part of them that was possibly going to die from their cancer. That circumstance was a place I felt like I could enter to help because I knew something about that inside of my own self because I shut down at a really young age as an infant actually and stayed shut down until my adulthood. And um, I, did, I was trying to find a way to bring my own self into life. And so 
to work with cancer patients gave me a language I could understand where death was part of the picture of what we were talking about and so was living in life. So about 12 years ago, I was just surfing the internet and found out that at Memorial Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, they were doing clinical trials where they were studying what do we do with advanced cancer patients who have lost all hope for the future and feel like their existence means nothing and they just wanna have like an early death. And so they put together Viktor Frankl's work with these advanced cancer, cancer patients and they, they helped these people cultivate meaning really systematically. And that was so exciting to me as a person, as a therapist and certainly as an adoptee. And so, what I came to understand by reading about these clinical trials and the experiences people had there and then trying them with my own clients and starting groups with my own clients was it works. Like it really works to cultivate and feed and make more room in our lives for meaning. And it helps counteract despair that we might be feeling. It's amazing. And um, there are so many concepts in your book that I'd love to talk about. Have we don't have time to touch on all of them today. <laughs> So carrying on from that one, there was something that um, that really resonated with me. And most of our listeners will have some idea of the importance of bonding. And you explain in your book why bonding is the way out of loneliness. And you do it so simply. And your story of how you came to understand this is incredible. Can you tell us about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was a, a baby. I was born to a mentally ill 18-year-old woman in California. And she was, she had been an orphan herself and her mother had been an orphan. So there's this lineage of orphans in my history, but she was mentally ill. And so she had a full-time job and she would leave me alone in an apartment all day long for nine hours while she went to work. And then she would come home and I would cry and that was overwhelming to her. So she would, you know, be physically violent with me to get me to stop. But lucky for me, she, she told her psychiatrist about what was happening and he had me rescued three times. And finally, when I was six months old, after I'd been in foster care a couple of times in a shelter, um, I was adopted at, at the age of six months. But by the time I was adopted, I had completely stopped crying or smiling or anything, but crying is really important because crying is how babies let their caregivers know, I need something, I want something. And, right. and that's how, and then when the mother or the father or the parent responds to the baby, that's how bonding happens. The baby calls, the cries are a call, and then the parents respond. And so um, I didn't have this. And so by the time I was adopted, I wasn't really available to bond with my adoptive family because I'd given up on my call, on my cry. And I grew up feeling very shut in and isolated. So fast forward to the best therapist I've ever had, Claude, he taught me, he said, he said to me, Pam, there's this equation, it's bonding equals call plus response. And without bonding, I mean, we're not really even here. I mean, we're, we're, you know, as everybody knows, babies are born kind of half, half cooked, you know, half baked, like yeah. they, they have to be born and then they have to call and be responded to, to come fully into their own ability to be independent. And, and so, um, He's really, he really spelled this out for me. And so it was like a light, just like what you said, like, like a light bulb went off and I realized, oh my gosh, like my call got shut down so early. And what happens is when we shut down our calls, we, we still call, but it's in a disguised kind of way. Like I would mm -hmm. 
overeat or I would, you know, drink alcohol or watch a ton of TV or things like that. The, my call was, I need to be comforted or I need, I'm bored or um, I'm upset, but I didn't know how to call to an actual person because I just shut, I'd shut that in. So um, I'm getting goosebumps as you say that. Yeah. So many people relate? are really, yeah. So many people are going to relate. Yeah. 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 Sorry, keep going. Yeah. So it was just really um, astonishing for me to realize just, and, and, and really um, kind of devastating to realize how much I'd shut my own call down and, and that to wake it back up felt so counter, um, what's the word? It felt so dangerous really, because it was my calls to my birth mom, which was when the violence happened. And so I learned for at a really, before I could, before I even remember all of this, of course, I don't remember any of it explicitly, but I, my, my whole body learned that crying, calling doesn't work. It brings me danger and pain. And so I had to unlearn this in therapy with Claude. And the way we did it was I started texting him about what my, what I needed. Like I was having a lot of family problems. My husband, my two daughters were, were teenagers and, you know, everybody was just not doing that well. And so I would, I would text Claude and say, oh my gosh, like this happened and that happened and he would respond and he would respond and he would respond. And I just started to kind of get it that calling. And I started to feel like when I would get into trouble that I wanted to call for help. It, was, it wasn't like, you know, jumping off a cliff. It was like the thing I wanted. So yeah. I started to understand that. And that maybe is the most important, it's the first chapter of my book, but maybe it's the most important, it's the, it's the foundation for kind of everything is we're born into bonding. We have to bond enough, you know, to stay alive. And so, yeah. but, but there's still a possibility that we can wake up our calls. And for those of us who are parents, we can learn to respond more in a more attuned way to the calls and even the silent or disguised calls of our kids. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say like as parents, because I had a lot of difficulty bonding with my first child. And I found that this period of my life is where adoption really reared its head and challenged me. Um, and I would be lying if I said it didn't still impact me as a mother. And you write that not knowing how to call for help proved challenging years later when you had babies of your own. And this really resonated with me. Can you tell us about that? Mm -hmm. Right. So the, I had my two daughters before I had ever met Claude or learned about what bonding was. So I raised them to be very independent because I felt like the kindest thing I could do for them would help them not have calls because I learned how to live and not have calls. And that way, if anything happened to me and they lost me, they would be more equipped to be without me. So it was this whole thing that I didn't even know I was really doing until I, <laughs> until I realized what I was doing. So yeah. with, because I began to understand that calls were so important for bonding, I started trying to purposefully wake up my, my daughter's calls. And there's this one time I went into my older daughter, Lauren's room, and she was just sitting there annoyed. I'd walked in, she's probably <laughs> 16. And I said, <laughs> I said, I want to do something for you right now. What do you want? And she said, nothing. And I said, no, really, I, I want to do something. Just tell me something you want. And she said, fine, wash my sheets. And I said, <laughs> okay. And I did. And, and she was just shocked. She was like, who are you? And what is this? What is this thing? But I started to really be attentive to anticipating the calls my kids had and also to hearing them even when they weren't clear that, and like, if it were raining out, I might say, hey, do you want to ride to school? Which I normally would 
looked like they can handle it themselves, you know? So then what happened was that after they started get calling more, then they started to call a lot and they, you know, they had crises, mom, I need this. And they were asking me for things all the time and they started to kind of fall apart. And at the time I was thinking, oh my gosh, I knew it. Like this is backfiring. Calling is dangerous. And Claude just said, stay with it, stay with it. And so I just kept trying to respond to their calls and then they kind of calmed down. And now, you know, they can call when they need something. And they also are, are independent also, you know, and take good care yeah. of themselves. So it all kind of worked out. I mean, knock on wood, when has it ever really all worked out? <laughs> but right now it's kind of worked out. And so it, it taught me a lot because they had been holding so much in just trying to, to do, they, they realized I didn't have the capacity for their calls. And so they learned how to not call. And then I, I had to grow the capacity. And thankfully it was when they were still, you know, in the house and I had more chances to learn. Yeah. Wow. It's really powerful. Um, something that you write about is direct experience versus survival brain. Can you explain these concepts concepts, and why you write that you can only heal through direct experience? Yeah. We have two networks in our brains and these two networks are completely separate from each other. They're like separate train tracks. So one, one network is called the default network. The default network has things we've already learned about how to solve problems and who we are and what's going on in our lives. And the default network has no new material and it's fear-based and it just goes around and around and around telling us what we did wrong or what we're going to do wrong or <laughs> how we don't measure up or things like that. And so, you know, most of us are familiar with this, this, I mean, probably we're all familiar with this internal voice that does this. We usually wake up with it until we, until we can change the channel, we wake up with this voice and it's right there if we do anything wrong. So that's the default network. And the other network that's a separate train track is direct experience, the direct experience network. And the direct experience network gets lit up in the brain when we are in the present moment and we are engaged in a direct experience with life, which means it hasn't happened yet. Like it's happening for the first time, like right now, like you and I right now are in direct experience because we're actively mm -hmm. talking and we've never done this before. So mm -hmm. the thing that um, is important about this is that sometimes people want to go to therapy and they want to spend the whole 50 minutes or hour from their default network talking about the problems. My husband did this, my kids did that, I did this. And if they do that the whole time and if the therapist lets them, then when they leave the session, nothing's changed. It's just that the, the default has been reinforced, which makes, makes it even stronger. And mm -hmm. so adoptees do this too on the adoptee communities I'm part of where you know, people will get together and talk about their problems. And talking about problems is only useful if something new can happen in the conversation. So if a client comes into my office talking about problems, I want them to have a brand new experience that they've never had before with the old material. So that, that's what, um, and so we only heal in, when direct experience is involved, we only heal because there's no way to heal unless something new happens and something new comes in. And so yeah. this is super important to me. And my friend, Anne Heffern and I, Anne Heffern wrote, you don't, you don't look adopted. It's a, a great book about the adoptee experience. She and I lead retreats for adult, adult adoptees in person. And we did that before COVID started. So we haven't done it for over a year now, but 
the first night when they all come in for a four day retreat together, they think they're going to be telling their stories and kind of getting into all of that, but we don't let them. We have them tell a little mini version of their stories in a, in a very concise form. And then we pair them up and we have them go outside on this hunt to find the perfect leaf for a partner that, that we pair them up and they have a partner. And so we have them go get a little gift from, from nature, like a leaf that has something to do with the partner they're getting the leaf for. And they have, we give them this direct experience. So they're outside, they're in their eyes, they're looking for a leaf, they're thinking about who they're giving the leaf to. And it's like a little, you know, like a little surprise for the, for the partner. And um, it's really fun. But what, what happens is they get, they get out of their, their default and they start to have fun and they start to think about the other person, which is meaningful because it meaning is anything that transcends beyond ourselves. So It's, and then, and then the healing, then, then the, then the chance for healing and opening and connecting really becomes more available because they're out of their yeah. story. Would you say it's kind of like living in the moment, like being in the moment and experiencing the moment? Yes, yes, but it's hard. It's hard to stay in the in the thing, and it's hard to be in the moment yeah. for a long period of time because our default network is so powerful. It wants to kick in really quick and. Yeah. and tell us how we're going to screw up or that we did screw up because it's trying to help us survive. It's our, our survival yeah. brain. Yeah, it's really interesting because I found um, like my default is I'm either looking 10 steps ahead, so I'm very goal-oriented and I'm always, I never celebrate the moment because I'm always looking at the next thing or mm-hmm. I'm in the back, I'm looking at the back. And so in the moment is a really difficult place for me to occupy. And if nothing else, 2020 taught me, Sometimes you just have to be in the moment because there you can't plan the future, and it's pretty mm. sad if you're just looking at the past all the time. So maybe there was That's something right. good in 2020. Yeah, yeah, some direct experience training. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So Pam, you talk about coping and essence identities. What are they, and why is it important that we can distinguish between the two of them? Mm-hmm. So all of us have patterned ways that we cope with troubles in our lives, you know, um, and, and coping, coping styles and coping strategies come from our default mode network. So some of us get perfectionistic and some of us um, just give up on the day and turn on the TV and, you know, check out. And some of us, um, use substances or, or, you know, get addictive in some way. And, and just these are styles of coping with stresses in life, but they can become so solidified into patterns that we feel like they are actually who we are. Like, I used to party a lot to cope with being miserable. And so I used to say I'm a party girl. And I was proud of it. But you know, it wasn't me, you know, it wasn't really, really me. It was more it was just how I learned how to cope. And I tried to put a little bow on it to make it look nice, but it, it was really, it came out of pain. And so what's important, and some of us have never known anything but coping. I mean, I feel like that was me. Like I, I pretty much was stuck in coping mode until probably my mid forties when things, things got better for me. But um, so, so people listening to this might feel like, well, I don't even, know what else there is. And so the, what there is, is we all also have an essence identity, an essence Mm -hmm. identity. And one way to quickly find out 
what your essence identity is, is to think about a time in your life when you were really excited, really engaged, like really, well, a time when you felt really alive, like when you were experiencing heaven on earth and what was happening in that moment. And sometimes when we have really great moments, we think, well, it was all these things outside of me. You know, it was the, it was the perfect camping trip with the perfect people, or it was the, the right location. But actually, when we have these moments when we feel really alive, there's something happening inside of us, like we're opened up or we're in the flow of things or we're not so worried about danger and, and making mistakes. We're actually just um, enjoying ourselves and connecting. We feel connected and we, maybe we feel ener energized or we feel light. So those kinds of moments are more what we are like when we're in our essence and not yeah. coping. Just thinking, I did the exercises at the end of that chapter um, that was talking about those things. And I thought long and hard about when did I feel the most, you know, when was I in my essence identity? When was I the most inspired? And it was when I was doing a research degree and it was so much work and it was so stressful, but I had never been more excited in my life because I was, I was learning and I was growing and I was hanging around people that were smarter than me and that knew, you know, it was just the most amazing time. And I thought, why is it that I don't chase that? that rush, that feeling all of the time? Why do mm. I spend so much time in, in the coping identity? So why is it that we, we sort of default to spending so much time when we're not happy instead of chasing down this awesome feeling when we are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and the answer really is because we're wired through all these millions of years to survive and to survive our, like our ancestors, we had to be on guard all the time. We had to worry about what animal is behind the tree and what storm is coming in and what tribe or group of people might be coming in to take our land away or, you know, all these kinds of things and, and uh, just really in major survival mode, we couldn't really put that down. And so our, our minds were working, you know, just around the clock to try to keep us alive and safe. So, um, you know, to, to be able to relax enough to feel yeah. our essence and that kind of pleasure. And it isn't, this goes, I actually had a thought with what you said about that time in your life that was so I was going to say meaningful to you because it was meaningful to you. Yeah, is, it was. It was. Is that me meaning isn't always easy or pleasant. Meaning meaning can just feel so aligned with who we are and it can it can light us up in a way like I wouldn't want to be this is hard, but I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. Or yeah. even going to like a funeral like this is really sad and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Like this I'm aligned yeah. with what with being here like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I almost need a moment just to absorb all of that. Um, Pam, there've been times in my life when I've been consumed with anger about adoption, um, about the unfairness of it, how unsatisfying relationships can feel to me, what was done to mothers and fathers who lost children to adoption and the popular belief that adopted people have been saved and should be grateful. And mm. when I am in this headspace, nothing feels good. You write about the concept of strengthening our causes and banishing our againstness. How can this help us to lead a meaningful life? Mm. Well, I was one of those angry adoptees. Like I, I wasn't a compliant adoptee. So I, I grew up like not bonding to my adoptive parents and being really angry that I wasn't with my original family and I felt ripped off. And so I was really, really angry at my parents and I was really angry at the system and I was really angry at 
people who were not adopted <laughs> jealous. I was yeah. jealous and I was, I was, I was just angry all the time. And so feeling against the world was a really big thing for me. Like in, in, in all the chapters of the book, this one, the one about learning how to, to not be against other people was probably my hardest challenge. And at some point I knew that, you know, when we are against other people or institute, well, well people, let's say, when we're against other people, that, that a grievance is like, you know, eating poison, hoping that the other person will die, <laughs> you know, but yeah. we're poisoning ourselves. It's, and I, I knew that intellectually, but I didn't know how to translate that into my own system. And so I, again, that's where Viktor Frankl helped me with that because when he got out of the Holocaust, he was committed to living in a mixed neighborhood with, with Nazi families and with, with Jewish people. And he, he refused to turn against any person or group of people and he wrote a lot about that. And so I, I was super intrigued by that, but just couldn't figure out how to do it. And I, I mean, in the book, I described like, you know, 10 different ways I was trying to get at, you know, addressing how against I felt and my heart felt so tight and closed. So I would say in a way that this, this issue of feeling against was probably the most vulnerable and the, the hardest issue for me to, to manage. But the thing is that, and again, I felt this way intellectually, I believe this intellectually, but I didn't feel it, that, that we're all interconnected, that if I'm going to be against you, to be against you is to be against myself. And I, I believed that. And so it became a problem I had to solve. And I, anyway, I did it in a bunch, I, I did it in a bunch of ways. And I think I have I've about 90% succeeded at that. But the thing, that's the thing that connects, you asked, the, the, the way you worded the question was great and interesting was in a way like the relationship between banishing againstness or getting, getting rid of againstness and meaning because meaning is a spiritual experience. You know, meaning connects us with the world around us. And so to be against people puts an artificial barrier and it goes too far because like, it's okay to be against actions or to be against policies. But once we become against people, we've taken it to another level and we pay a price inside of our own hearts and our own bodies. I mean, what I know from the inside is it's such a root of suffering to, to be holding an against feeling toward people. So mm. anyway, um, yeah, so what was your question? <laughs> what was your question? The question was how can um, how can banishing our againstness and strengthening our causes help us to live a meaningful life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there's this something really um, possible about discerning. Like when we have a bad, when something hurts us, or something happening to other people hurts us, and and makes us angry because it crosses a line on human rights or something like that. There's an important and possible discernment around turning against people versus turning against actions and like mm -hmm. I say, policies. So when we don't turn against people, we can stay more connected to the whole web of life. Yeah. And 
Yeah. And so that's a whole different experience and it, and it opens so many doors for us internally. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm saying all of this from this woman who has lived in a cement or a, a steel closed jammed heart for like most of her life. So like this is, I'm talking like from the inside, like this is what I found. So yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. It's super hard. I mean, we could, we could talk about this for an hour, you know, this subject yeah. as far as I'm concerned. And it's not like something you flick a switch, is it? I mean, this is no. this is a life's work, you know, and a constant choice that you make. Yeah. I mean, do you remember in my book, in this chapter, I I went to a silent meditation retreat where we did yes. meta meditation and we were saying, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, and may you have ease. And we start yes. with someone really yes. easy. So all, all I could think of was my daughter's dog because that only one and the only, only person in the whole world <laughs> I could feel open-hearted toward was my daughter's dog. And then it was like, <laughs> okay, my husband, but you know, I don't know if I really feel this way toward him. And then, you know, hours and hours of this meta practice. But then yeah. I was walking to visit this horse on the property and the horse wasn't coming to me when I would visit the horse. And I was so <laughs> angry at the horse. And I was like, you know, I, I was against the horse. And I was like, oh my God, look at me. Now I'm against the horse. I'm just, I'm, I'm doomed. I'm broken, you know, but you know, there are all these things of trying to stay with opening the heart. I, I love that story. And um, it actually made me want to go and do one of those retreats. And I have actually made a list of people that I want to do that mantra for. And, um, and because this year has been such a heightened emotion year for me, like, people just doing normal things you know my birthday just passed and um my birthday is for me for whatever reason it's just always a really triggering time I, I don't enjoy my birthday at all and any little thing even if I've set it up to be something that's going to disappoint me which I usually do you know it, it frustrates me and and then I've got these bad feelings towards people and um I think I need to do, I need to do something like that where I can just learn a, and it's a really active step to letting go of some things Right. So, um, yeah. So right. I really, there's a lot of horses in my life this year that I need to do that <laughs> <laughs> So Pam, perhaps my favourite takeaway from your book is what you write about attitude. And over the past year of coronavirus, political division, and for me, personal loss, it has been something that I have most worked on within myself. When you write about attitude being our last freedom, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, I wrote about that and that's something I learned directly from Viktor Frankl. I mean, that was one of his yeah. quotes is that, that when a person loses everything, the only thing they have left is a choice to make around their attitude or how they, how they cope with the, the circumstances that they can't change. Mm -hmm. This thing about attitude is tricky because I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the United States, there's a lot of pressure to be positive and a lot of um, really, I think, dangerous and dam damaging pressure to be positive when people don't feel positive and to pressure people to be positive is like a way of not listening to them and not honoring them. So this thing about we have the power to mm, choose our attitude is not about positive thinking. It's really about accessing a true choice. So for me, well, and, and another thing is, and by what, what he means by attitude is really an orientation. So the orientation could be the attitude orientation could be openness or patience or generosity or um, hard work or uh, you know something like that, gratitude, whatever. So um, for me, I know I'm feeling 
part of like in my essence identity. Like I feel like my being my real self when I have access to generosity, that's, that's a clue for me. Like that's my favorite orientation. When I'm in the mood to do things for others, I'm in a good place. So there are times when I'm in a bad mood or I'm, I just feel stuck in this mental state that's miserable or something. And I know I'll remind myself, is there any way you can move into generosity that might help you unwind this mood? You know, and that's, that's assuming that if there's something I need to feel, like if I'm grieving something or I have to really address what, what's upsetting me, then okay, I need to address it. I really do. But sometimes with, you know, with, our, with our default network in our brains, our mind can just tell us all kinds of stuff and get us in a bad mood you know, that isn't really stuff we have to grieve or deal with in the moment or just stuck. So yeah. in those cases, um, I'll just, I'll look for a way to be generous. That's my easy, that's my, my go-to, my first go-to attitude that I can look for. So an example is that a few weeks ago, well, you know, American Halloween, just like in the movies, <laughs> except this year was very different. I have this group of, <laughs> I have this group of, because no one went trick-or-treating, but I, I had this group of, I have this group of widows I've been working with for, for four years. We meet on Thursdays and there are nine of them and they're in their seventies and eighties. So I was thinking about them. I was in a bad mood and I was thinking about them on a Saturday and I had nothing to do that day, which is really a miracle. Like I, I never have nothing to do on a Saturday. So I thought about a really funny art project where I, I was going to make these shaggy ghosts, like, like a garland of shaggy ghosts for them. And so I made these nine strands of shaggy ghosts. And then I drove around to each of their houses and dropped them off with a little card. And it made them laugh so hard because these ghosts were just very unkempt and messy. And it was just sort of, it felt like what this year has felt like, but they were also really yeah. adorable. And, and so that activity took a lot of time, but it made me feel really, really happy. And it was meaningful because I was connecting to the world beyond me versus just, you know, sitting in a dark room and, you know, lamenting about how terrible my life is or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I think that's what this podcast has been for myself this year, and maybe even for Jane, is a way of connecting and getting information out and doing something that, you know, we can learn and grow at the same time as everybody else. So it's yeah. a powerful way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I love about your book is that at every at the end of every chapter, it poses a question for reflection and calls you to action to immediately improve your life. And I thought I might put you on the spot today and before you leave, which, gosh, I can't believe we we're already at that point, is to ask if you could tell our listeners just one thing that they could do today to move towards a meaningful life, what would that be? Victor Frankl says, and I agree that meaning is always available to us and that when we get disconnected from meaning, we are the ones who have disconnected. Like it has not disconnected from us. We disconnect. So meaning is always there waiting for us, ready for us to, to find our way toward it. And the first step to moving toward meaning is curiosity. So it's, it's really like opening our eyes in the present moment and, and really looking at all the possibilities that we can move towards something meaningful. So actually I have a little list for you of yeah. like a treasure chest of, of a list. So here are some examples. Sense, our senses connect us with meaning. What we see, hear, taste, smell, touch, you know, like simple as petting a dog or looking at the sky. Those are, those are meaningful experiences. 
And then there's actions, whether that's, um, you know, getting involved in causes or calling friends or doing something like making those ghosts or um, meaningful work. The podcast work is meaningful because it's connecting you to the larger world, like you said. So there's, there's senses, there's actions, there's love. There's all the people, that, the, the animals, the, the places that we love. There's an investing in that somehow. There are meaningful stories, like stories that we want to read that other people are sharing or stories that we want to share in some way through a blog or a conversation with a family member or whatever. And then there's legacy. There's all the things that we are involved in or invested in with, with building a better future. So, you know, whether that's, again, supporting causes or um, the environment, whatever, whatever that might be, thinking about the future. And then the last one is attitude you know, really trying to purposefully, intentionally move into an orientation that connects us in a way that feels, um, what's the word? Nourishing, nourishing, mutually nourishing, nourishing to us, nourishing to the outside world. That's, yeah. that's how the attitude of, a meaningful attitude feels. Yeah. Yeah. So curiosity is often the very first step. It's like, okay, what can I do? Or what's a better question I can ask myself? Like, like uh, earlier today, I was asking myself, what is wrong with my husband? But if I was really <laughs> trying to shift, as if I was trying to shift my attitude, it could be like, okay, what's a better question? Uh, okay, what could I do that would be more fun right now than, or more, you know, more fun really than, than that. So I went out and I got my dog and I have a puppy, a pandemic puppy, and I got him a new, a toy. It's a pink pig that's really adorable. And yeah, I went and did that. And that just gets me, then, then I'm shifting more into my essence. I'm, I'm less just stuck and hunkered down and coping. Yeah. It's valuable and good advice. So thank you for that. I know I put you on the spot, but <laughs> um, Pam, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a little jump start at the beginning of 2021. I truly loved your book. I can't recommend it enough and that you've shared so generously your time today. I do hope that um, you'll come back sometime to talk some more in future episodes. I would love to. That's brilliant. And we'll put some links to find out more about Pam and where you can buy her book in our podcast notes page on the Jigsaw Queensland website. And a reminder, do you have a story to tell? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Go to the podcast page on Jigsaw Queensland website and fill in a prospective guest form. And remember that a dot perspective can be listened to all over the world. Thanks so much, Pam. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 double three five eight double six double six if you live in another state of australia you can still call the forced adoption support service number and your call will be answered by the forced adoption support service in the state that you're calling from in every other state relationships australia operates this service 
A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.